Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for today and, Lord, for your goodness. And, uh, Lord, each and every day, God, you bring mercies that are new. And so, Lord, we're very thankful that we can be here this morning. I know that many that are traveling and take advantage of the long weekend, we ask your blessing on them and that you will give them uh, rest as well as safe return. Lord, for those not feeling well, I pray that you would strengthen them and expedite their healing and uh, for them to get back on their feet. And we pray, Lord, for our, our lesson this morning, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So we have kind of been in a sub-series um, in the end of Ephesians, and in chapter 5, we saw what God's will of command was for each of us. That will of command was that we are what? It's on the screen, folks. Okay. It's on the screen. God's will of command for every believer is that we are filled with God's Spirit. Um, and this idea of, of being filled with God's Spirit, Paul challenges those who are reading the letter to be Spirit-filled, people who submit to God. And then he goes on to, to give examples of areas that are most influential in our lives. For instance, we see a, a foundational influential role in our life is being a Spirit-filled spouse. We see what it means to be a spirit-filled parent. And as I was thinking this morning about this, I was reminded being filled with God's Spirit is not accidental. It's not accidental. For you to be filled with God's Spirit is something that requires an intentional focus every day. And the thing that probably frustrates me most is I might, I might look back and reflect on the week and feel like I was a good father on Monday, but then I was just... I just didn't do a great job the rest of the week. I might have been filled with the flesh. Because, folks, we either have been filled with God's Spirit or we have been filled with flesh. There really is no in-between. And even then, it's, it's, you know, we might be really good in the morning. But then we might blow the afternoon. And, and when we think about being Spirit-filled, it is something that requires an intentional commitment that we do constantly. And Paul is addressing the areas that are the most influential in our lives. Specifically, he's talking about the home. And so... When we looked last week, we introduced the next section, and I know the, the colors on this are a little bit of an eyesore, but I specifically wanted to show that Paul is addressing two different groups of people in this section. Paul is shifting his focus, and he is addressing a group that is marginalized. We looked at that last week, the bond servants, and then he's also addressing those that are masters or those that are over them. Please remember that this was not a time of equity and inclusion. This was not a time of equity. This was not a time uh, because there were many entire groups of people that were constantly marginalized. We had widows that were marginalized. We had orphans that were marginalized. We had those that were physically handicapped, the blind, the lame, that were marginalized. We had slaves that were marginalized. This was not a time of equity to where there was every person was entitled to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay? And Paul is addressing two different people here, the people that are subordinates and those that are authorities. And Paul opens this section addressing slaves. And we looked last week, we can call them slaves depending on your translation, slaves, servants, bond servants. Depending on what your translation says, it's all the same. Yes, thank you. Uh, this is a very hard passage to process as we imagine what it must have been like in that day. When we were looking at the, the, uh, the reality of slavery in this day is that in certain cities in Asia Minor, over half the population was made up of slaves. And Ephesus was in that area. Ephesus was considered one of the major slave ports of the entire Roman Empire. So when he's talking to a group, he's not talking to a small group. He's talking to a very large group. And in last week, we 
I, I mentioned that at one point in time that Rome was considering doing, making slaves wear some kind of visible outer garment so everyone could recognize who was distinguished and who was a slave. And you folks remember from last week why they chose not to do that? And so for that very reason, they said we can't do that because then the slaves will realize how many of them there are. Um, and so, which, and again, there were three of those wars, by the way. Good old I am Spartacus is what we talked about last week. So when we look back and step the rationale, Paul actually addresses many different churches this way. You will find parallel passages in Colossians 3. You will find it in Titus 2, and you'll find it in 1 Peter 2, where the same verbiage is given. As we read here that we're going to read this morning, That same verbiage is given to at least three other bodies, three other Christian churches at that time. And when we we were talking about this last week, remember that by the time that God gave the law to Moses, slavery had been around at least for 500 years, if not 800 years, at least. Um, Slavery goes all the way back to the very earliest recorded civilization, Mesopotamia, Samaria, all that. And then we have the giving of the law around 1200 B.C., 1300 B.C. And here we have the Torah came in. And we can read the Old Testament, and you can read through the Old Testament. The, store, the Torah established framework and rules that challenged the, the inhumane practice of slavery of the day. That even in its infancy, that God challenges people to be countercultural to the world around them. And then ultimately get to the New Testament, where we read in the Gospel that the New Testament plants seeds to challenge the very practice of slavery, the very concept of slavery, the very core of slavery. We looked at these two thoughts from last week. This is still by means of review. That the Gospel Coalition has a great article on this, and it says, Even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the Gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that made slavery possible. Now, we read several accounts last week uh, how, uh, regarding not just the ownership of a slave, the moral, ethical issue of that, but also the way that they were treated. Uh, we read how that masters could abuse them or kill them without any legal recourse whatsoever. The slaves had no legal recourse whatsoever. They could be used, abused, and literally just discarded like a pair of shoes. We would like to say, well, I'm sure you know there was a, a hierarchy, a caste, and I'm sure they weren't treated that poorly. Actually, they were. Uh, many times they were killed uh, because they were worked so inhumanely. And so they had no rights, and masters could literally work them to death. And then we read the gospel. Roman culture said that a master could not even have a friendship relationship with their slave. Yet the gospel comes along and says, they're your brother. And imagine how, how awkward would it be that you are a Roman elite, you have a house full of slaves, and next thing you know, you go to this church that someone told you about, and one of your slaves is an elder. How does that look? The very concept of the gospel, the very core of the gospel, challenges the very core of slavery at the time. And so... Now we have to look through the lens of today, okay? Because when we look at this, we have a literal application of obviously we could go to certain countries today. We could look at things like human trafficking today. Um, What can we take from this? So looking at this, let's look through the lens of today. Paul says, and we're going to read this again, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So Paul has already given us examples of what it looks like to be spirit-filled, like in marriage and parenting. What is perhaps the most influential area in our life outside of this? Work. Work. I was looking up yesterday, and it says the average person will spend 90,000 hours at work over a lifetime. Literally, a third of your life is spent at work. 
I feel like this last week I put in at least 10,000 hours. It's been one of those weeks. John's done. Yeah, yeah, so you've already got your quota in. Great job. Which, by the way, we sleep like 250,000 hours in our lifetime, so just as a comparison. But um, how, much, how much of that time at work? How much of that time at work? Great question. Um, we're going to come back to about ethical practices of being employed here in just a minute. Too. So we spent about 90,000 hours interacting with people. Talk about influence. Talk about influence. We spend a third of our life interacting with other people. We, um, we hear the term secularization. And the idea of secularization is it's fine that you have faith. Just keep it at home. I have no issue that you believe in Jesus and in God. Just, you, just can't, you just can't bring it into the voting booth. The idea of secularization is you have faith, but it stays in a box and it stays on the shelf. And you only bring it out when it doesn't influence anyone else. James says, how can your faith not do that? He says, I'm going to show you my faith by my, by my works. All of us have what we would call a worldview. And it, whether we like it or not, that worldview, that value system affects everything that we do. It, is, it, it results in action. And the world says it's fine that you have faith. You just can't bring it into the work. You just can't bring it into. And, of course, sometimes it's very difficult. How can I with certain rules in place, certain things in place? James says that... There is no way that we could have faith and it not change the way that we live. How can our values not affect the way that I spend this much time with people? How can it not? Um, how can my faith not impact and interact the number, the number of people that I'm surrounded with on a daily basis? And so when looking at this, the first word that come to my mind was authority. First, mind, first word come to mind is authority. Because we read in here very clearly establish a relationship between uh, a subordinate and an authority. We read in here two, where it talks about obey and fear. Obey and fear. Uh, obey literally means to hear under or to listen from a subordinate position in which compliance with what is said is expected and intended. In other words, live in submission to whoever is over you. We also read fear. It's the Greek word phobos, from which we get our word phobia. Phobia. And so we were able to go to the, the Museum of Science and History, and we got to remind ourselves what all of our phobias are as we were walking through all the creature exhibits. And um, so they had a whole can, like a huge jar full of cockroaches. And so they, they wouldn't let me chase my daughter with them, but she wouldn't come close to them. And they actually had one exhibit where they actually had hissing cockroaches. Yeah, really cool. So um, they were cool because they were behind glass. That's why it was cool. Yes. So... They're supposed to be, taking a step back, they're supposed to be a healthy fear of authority. But this is a struggle in our world today. Because 50 years ago, there was a natural instinct of fear of authority. Today's culture says, you have to earn my respect. It doesn't matter that you're my teacher. It doesn't matter that you're my commander. It doesn't matter that you're my boss. I'm not going to give you my respect of authority until I feel like you've deserved it. It's very real. It's a, gener it's a generational study. Uh, they have there's generational studies that talk about it. And when we talk about authority, we see first authority is sovereignly instituted by God. What three institutions do we read in Scripture that God sovereignly ordained? Family. The family, church. Church. church, and government. Family, church, and government. And working with children, I think, is it's so critically important. Children, teenagers, 
freedom from authority simply does not exist. Simple. Freedom from authority doesn't exist. It's coming somewhere. Because in many cases, a child looks at it and feels that they are being treated as a child because obedience seems like a childish concept, but it's not. There's always some measure of authority, and freedom from that authority does not exist. There's always some measure of authority that someone has to follow. I thought of Matthew 8 9 this morning, when even the Roman centurion, who would have had considerable authority over the people he was around, how did he describe himself to Jesus? He said, I am a man under authority. So even someone who would have been considered a distinguished, a distinguished person in that community, even he recognized, even I am a person that is still under authority. Um, so, and I would say that even as an, as an adult, what areas of authority do we still find ourselves having to submit to? In the home? What? So I've got, a, I've, got, I've got a story about that. I've got a story about that. So... So our, our oldest son, Zach, you know, he's running a lawn business, and he's at that age to where we're going to have to start formalizing his stuff. And uh, my has it given way to a lot of conversation about, about adulting. And even then, as we are getting uh, lots of people we've talked to, a lot of, of consultations, lots of input, lots of counsel. I mean, if you're self-employed, how much taxes are you supposed to probably put aside? 30% or more. And next thing you know... Here we have a child who is not really having to do that right now, and now he realizes I have to. Oh my, that was a fun conversation. That was a fun conversation. And it's in telling the child, understand that even if you work for yourself, you are still going to be a man under, under authority. Whether it's tax, whether it's OSHA, if it's X number of degrees outside, you, you're obligated by law to give a 15-minute break or whatever it is. And so no, no matter what you do in life, even self-employed, you are always going to be a person who is under all the time. Uh, but our, we struggle with that because of our, our pride. I am my own man. Right, Mom? Um, you know, we, 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 want to, we want to be our own person, do our own thing, but there's always going to be some authority that is, that is directing us. And so submitting to that which is heard involves a change of attitude, forsaking the tendency of the fallen nature to rebel against divine instructions and commands and seeking God's will and not self-will. We see also that the challenge of authority is though is corrupt nature. That very same sinful nature that doesn't want to bend to a, a God-ordained authority is the very same sin nature that if I'm in authority, I'm tempted to abuse my authority. Now, how often have we seen this in corporate business? How often have we seen it in the church? Um, just because someone is in authority does not mean that they are above reproach, does not mean that they do not need some form of accountability and transparency. And ultimately, number three, there's only really one source of divine authority. <coughs> only one. And as I was thinking through this, there's only one entity with ultimate authority regardless of which institution that we may fall, whether it is in the home, whether it is in the church, whether it is in the government. There's only one source of divine authority because after all, Christ had rendered to Caesar that which is... Caesar's, but render unto God that, that which is God's. And thinking even through some of the examples that we have through the, uh, through the New Testament, um, think of Acts 4. You know, we have the Jewish authorities that went to them and said, you can no longer speak in this name. And their response says, we cannot help but to speak the things we've heard. We can't. And the very next chapter, they're beaten. The very next chapter, they're beaten. And when the disciples were told to obey, that's where they said, look, we'll just make it a little more clear for you. It is necessary for us to obey God rather than man. And as believers, we take a step back and say, under the view of God's word, ultimate authority, 
God did ordain these institutions, and there's always going to be some form of authority by which now we might not be considered slaves or servants, but there is some measure of being a subordinate in some realm. None of us in here are not touched by this in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Okay? Yes. Yes. So I want to give you a couple things this morning about what it means to be a spirit-filled worker, what it means to be a spirit-filled subordinate, what it means to be a spirit-filled employee. And I believe that next week, the backside of this passage is a great passage on what does it look like to be a spirit-filled leader. So looking at this this morning, looking at verses 5 through 7, we read, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And that last part is what really stood out to me. Doing the will of God from the heart. So if he says doing the will of God from the heart as a subordinate, what can we kind of imply that is God's will for us regarding our work? It should align with the will of God. It should align with the will of God. Good. It's from God, aligned with, pleasing to or more. Pleasing to. Could, would it be outside the realm of implication that it is God's will that we are a spirit-filled employee who has a good testimony? I mean, could we say that? When, when we're looking at this, we specifically see he used the word sincere. So what other words why, that we might include with this word sincerity? How do you think we could describe it? To be someone who works with sincerity, we could say is someone who works with what? Integrity. Integrity is a great word. Authenticity. And I'm trying to not touch my screen. I messed it up. Okay. What, what was that word? Authenticity. What else? Being a spirit-filled employee who works with sincerity, I want to be an employee who works with good motives. We'll kind of come back to that. Ooh, I was writing down honesty, but duplicitous sounds better. That actually is actually part of the word. That actually is part of the word, not being double. Okay, duplicitous, not being double. Uh, yes. Doing something with simple honesty and motivated by singleness of purpose. That when I'm working, God says it is my will that you are a spirit-filled employee, that you are someone who works with sincerity, someone who works with honesty, someone who is not two-faced. That you are the same person when the boss is there and when they're not. That our speech is such that it doesn't matter if the boss is standing there or not, that we are still have an honest, integrity way that we go about even our speech, how we talk about the boss, how we talk about the organization all the time. Some of the translations worded this way, try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Because after all, observe behavior changes. That's the thing. Observe behavior changes. So I'm going to work in such a way that I'm going to work as if I'm being observed all the time. It doesn't matter whether the boss is there or not. Another way, not in here though. We don't have one in here. I don't have one in here. Um, another way it could be worded is not only to win their favor. Because we're going to look at motive here in just a moment. But not, not to win their favor when their eye is on you. We call them brown nosers, right? We're, the person that's constantly just trying to earn the boss's favor. He says that's not sincere. That's not sincere at all. Uh, what would be some ways, what might this look like? 
for someone who is not doing this. Okay, for instance, time theft would be an example of one. When the boss is not watching, I'm not doing my job. It's time theft. Or as Taylor mentioned, I could be sleeping. could be sleeping. Okay, that would be considered time theft. Yeah. I mean, how much time I didn't look it up. I mean, how much time I've heard it. How much time do people waste each day, each week on social media? A lot. I mean, there's research on that. How many times? Seriously. I don't know. Yep. Well, for promotion, right, sometimes people spend more time trying to be seen rather than to work. Mm-hmm. Which would not be sincere. Now, in the world, the world's mind has nothing wrong with selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, but as a believer, our motive should be greater than that. Okay, it's not for selfish ambition. We'll come back in just a minute. Because our faith should influence every part of our being, there should be no distinction between the sacred and the secular. None whatsoever. We've already read in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands. Honest work with his hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in a time of need. So I want you to consider this. What would it look like for a worker to uh, – we've already done that one. What would the difference in motivation be for a slave worker as opposed to a paid laborer? And the difference between more, more salary versus less beans. Yes. Okay. What, what is – I want you to be thinking about what – I'm trying to get this without, without giving it away. Think about the work ethic of a slave – I think about the work ethic of, an, of a paid employee. What is Paul's, the gospel's expectation? Yeah, the, same. the same? I mean, the same, the same thing, like service unto God. I'm doing everything with, like a bondservant of Christ, so I'm giving it my all, regardless of the consequence and or the reward. So maybe this is stretching a bit too far. What would it have looked like the slave to have read this and said, I'm going to work better than the paid employee. Yes. Seriously. I mean, you're, you're a slave. Paul is a free man. Paul writes this and he says, you want me to do what? This is the guy that beats me. This is the guy that will not give me a break. He didn't even, I mean, fill in the blank. Look how they sold off family. You know, yes. Your children, potentially. Your wife. Like, I mean, we can't even wrap our mind around what the inhumane treatment would be of these people. And he says, your work ethic needs to be better than a paid employee. And all the time. Not just when he's watching. What would the master think when he saw that? <laughs> yeah. He's up to something. Exactly. <laughs> Seriously. That's what I he's up to something. He's trying to earn my trust to fill in the blank. He just wants to be free. He wants to whatever. And then the more that he, he sees that person, the more he realizes he is working out of a sincere heart. He doesn't have a motive. We can't even wrap our mind around that. I'm glad we don't. Well, Amen to that. It's just to please God. And that's what, Absolutely. That's what Carlos How is this applicable to us? Because our works are our testimony, and that's what draws people to Christ. I'll give you one example. That's not my job. It's not my that, so I do have a statement I make to my wife all the time, and I realize it's something that is relative to the situation. I tell her all the time, that's not my circle. Have you ever seen something at work that just frustrates you? And you're like, well, I'm not saying it's not my job, but at the same time, it's not my, it's not my circle. It's not my area of influence, and really, I can't cross lanes. I, can't, you know, I don't have the authority to do that. So the only way sometimes I could mentally not drive myself crazy is I just say, well, 
Stop my circle. But that's also a mixed bag because in some cases, military term, cover and move, you know, I realize that it just needs to be done. Uh, there's a book that I had read about a year ago, and it's called A High Impact Player by Liz Wiseman. And she likens a high impact player to someone who is like a goalie. They know when to play out of the box and when it's time to go back to being goalie. They don't need credit. They don't need fame. They just know a job needs to be done. They do it. And how often do we just look at something and say, well, that's not my job. That's not my job. Working with a heart of sincerity is we could say, you know what? It's something that needs to be done. The boss might not see it. No one might get credit for it. But I want to be a spirit a spirit-filled employee. And and so we can probably do several other examples there. I read a book a couple years ago by Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll, and it's it's called Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. And he starts off by saying that excellence is a mindset. That's the very first thing. It's a mindset. Um, he references a couple of things. For instance, um, Proverbs 27, 23, 7, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So as, an, as a spirit-filled employee, I'm going to be dedicated to whether my boss sees me or not. I'm going to be someone who is just dedicated to doing everything I can to the best of my ability. And whether I get credit or not, it doesn't matter. Whether I ever get a shout-out or not, it doesn't matter um, because mediocrity impacts no one. Nothing. It starts with a mindset, and as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And as a spirit-filled employee who doesn't want to do anything to undermine the efficacy of the gospel, the testimony of the church or God's kingdom, I want to work in such a way that God's excellence is not hindered by me. He is talking to people that are both bond and free. So regardless of our position in a company, it doesn't matter if we are low. It doesn't matter if we are high. It doesn't matter if we are mid. We are called every day to represent the person who is excellent. Because after all, if people know I'm a believer and they look at my shoddy work ethic, what are they going to think about the person that I say that I have such faith in that I'm here to represent? Um, excellence, I've often found, is not found in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the big things. I mean, we have some big things that if we don't do them well, of course, it doesn't turn out very well. But excellence is found in doing the daily tasks to the best of our ability, oftentimes the boring, mundane. Um, I, was, I was reading through a story yesterday. Um, he was a military Leader of Thebes. Um, I tried to. I looked up this morning to pronounce it, um, Epaminondas, something like that. And he was a military leader of Thebes around 350 BC, and he is most known for his victory over the Spartans. That'll go on your resume. Mm-hmm. Yep. And because of this victory, he was given tremendous fame, but many people envied him. So kind of like Daniel, they knew the only way about it was to find something. Something else. They couldn't attack his character. They couldn't attack his military record. So they decided to put him in charge of the city garbage. Could you imagine like having that military victory and then being put over sanitation in your community to, to humiliate him? And here's what his response. And he knew who did it and he knew why. And he said this. He said, if the position will not reflect glory on me, then I will reflect glory on the work. If the position will not reflect glory on me, I will reflect glory on the work. And so, folks, regardless of what menial task we may have, I'm going to bring glory to the work because I'm going to do it in such a way that when someone knows me, they know that I'm a believer and they know that my faith has influenced me to turn it this way. Whether the boss is looking or not, whether I get, whether I get fame or not. Um, what are some qualities of an excellent employee? Because after all... One of my driving philosophies is to be the kind of worker that one day I want to someday work for me. 
punctual, you realize that's like a number one thing right now. If you can show up on time, you've got a job. Like, I don't know about you guys. I mean, we're relatively in the same zone of life, but I was just glad to get a job. You know, you're giving me a job. You sure about that? Okay, so you're giving me a job. And now today it's almost kind of like, you know, a entitlement might be the best say. So here we have being on time. What else? Not lazy. Reliable. I often tell people, here are the main competencies I, I, I try to build in students. One is that uh, they can communicate well. They can get along with people. They could show up on time and they could solve problems. Because if you can do those things, those are critical competencies and you could do about anything. Because after all, a lot of businesses now, and we know that there are some industry exceptions, they actually are, are not as picky now on what someone might, that might have actually graduated their degree. They just want to, do you have these critical competencies and can you solve problems? And can you show up on time? What else? Oh, someone said it. Oh, did, did you read Covey's book? Is that what, uh, I had it written down in my notes, actually, so Ben gets a point. Um, so Stephen Covey's book on seven, high, seven Habits of Highly Effective People, outside the Bible, one of the most influential books I've ever read. And number one is be proactive. Be proactive. You see something, see the need, take the lead. Yep. How, can you summarize that for me? <laughs> um, no? <laughs> I was serious. When in charge, be in charge. Yeah. Huh. Take ownership. Ownership, responsibility. Um, yeah, our, uh, my superintendent, he, uh, he, likes the, uh, he likes the Jocko book on that extreme ownership. So own it. Own it. The biggest problem we have now is a lot of people like to deflect problems. They like to yes. I refuse to throw people under a bus. I refuse to, even if that means I take someone's black eye. I just, I refuse to throw someone under the bus. So that is where passive voice really comes in handy. I don't really give a subject that did the action. I just say that it was done, you know? And so, but there's nothing that undermines team unity more than throwing somebody under a bus. I always say when I, that's, if somebody that I'm in charge of has screwed something up, my rank is a shield for them because I get to deal with them on my terms. Mm -hmm. I don't stay, I don't step to the side and let the boss send a heat round to them mm -hmm. because Number one, it my, my authority. Number two, it destroys mm -hmm. a team. If you do it does. That. It does. Um, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Lauren Richards' quote on, on um, what submission is, a willingness to be responsive. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our work, are we known as one who is responsive? Are we known as one who gets things done? Are we known to respond to a need, to see a need and take the lead, even if it means being proactive? Imagine that we produce work in such a way that we stand out among our peers and not for praise and promotion, but because the Lord is worthy of us doing our best in everything we say and do. And we're running out of time, but if you look at verses 5 through 8, look, look at every time that Paul references doing something for Christ. As you would Christ, bond servants of Christ, the will of God, as to the Lord, from the Lord. It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. Okay, My, my boss is a mean cuss. Okay, well, I'm supposed to do my work as to the Lord. Um, my work environment is toxic. It very well may be. But what I am doing is not for them. It is, um, you know, 
The difficulty of this section is that slaves who were being mistreated were, were challenged to epitomize the gospel by loving their masters. And we read that. I think, I think the King James has it probably the best way that it fits in here. He says, bless those who curse you, do good to them that hate, for you, that hate you. And notice what he says, pray for them who despitefully use you. Which, what would it have been like to have been in the church that Sunday when the pastor read this to the, to the, to the servants in Ephesus? We talk about a rough sermon. So you're telling me I'm supposed to have a work ethic better than a paid employee. You're telling me I'm supposed to love these people that are despitefully using me. I'm supposed to pray for them that God blesses them? We're reading Colossians, a, a, a parallel passage here. And it says, whatever you do, and that's pretty, pretty applicable. Whatever it is that you do this morning, whatever it is, folks, that you do this week, do heartily for your boss. No. Do heartily to earn a promotion. No, that may happen, but that's not why we do it. Do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. It's almost kind of like if we get our vertical relationship right, horizontal relationships often have a tendency to take care of themselves. And he reminds and says, remember, you're serving the Lord Christ. When I go to work this week, that's what I'm doing. My goal, my focus as I lead in a Christian school is, Lord, I don't do anything to undermine the testimony of the gospel. Not about enrollment, not about test scores. I don't do anything that undermines the testimony of the gospel in the community. I don't want someone to walk away and whether because of our institution or what we call kingdom education, I don't have walked away and for me to have left a scar and a mark on that and for them ultimately then for the gospel to have a less impact on their life because of me as we go out this week how can I work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man and if the Lord chooses to bless us through promotions through raise then thank God for that my goal is to serve the Lord Christ can you think of three Old Testament examples who exemplified this Joseph is an astounding example we cannot even fathom could you imagine the bitterness that he had to resolve over and over and over again? Because not only was he wronged once, he was wronged twice. Three times. Three times? Brothers, not a first wife, prison. He's yes, prison. yes, yes. Two and a half. Um, so, but, but he carried himself in such a way that even though he was a subordinate, he was still given tremendous authority. Um, I thought about Name and slave girl. The Bible doesn't even give her a name. The Bible says that name and king of um, that he was a commander in Syria, and he would actually raid in and out of Israel, whether it was she was stolen from her family in those raids, whether he killed the family or they were sold. I mean, either way, she was quite unjustly taken, and she was supposed to serve Naaman's wife. Naaman has leprosy, and she said, "That's karma." <laughs> He gets leprosy, a death sentence, and she said, well, he deserved it. She does something incredible. Instead, she, she says, do you guys know that there's a prophet in Israel that can take care of that? I mean, I mean, honestly, would, any of, I mean, would, would we all struggle with being the person? And I'm sure I'm not saying that she probably didn't. But the fact that she said, you know what, I'm serving the Lord Christ, Yahweh. I'm serving the Lord and so I, even though he probably is worthy of dying in a miserable, awful way, 
maybe, just maybe, he might. And by the way, when he was healed, he'd never again attack Syria for the rest of his days and serve Yahweh. He didn't, the Bible says he did, not, he did not worship any other false god the rest of his life. Talk about an impact. What about Daniel? Daniel's incredible testimony. And do we realize the reason why Daniel was probably able to stand in front of pagans? Was he probably did it before he was taken in a culture that had already fallen away from the Lord. He was a teenager when he was taken. He refused to eat the king's meat in chapter 1. Yet God filled him with wisdom and prophecy, which granted God does not always give thus us that measure. His character was so profound that those who despised him literally couldn't find anything to use against him. And he is one of the few Bible characters that the Bible gives no moral flaw. Now, we know he wasn't perfect, but I mean, he's one of the very few people where there's, he doesn't have a David and Bathsheba moment. It depends on if you wrote it. He, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But, but we also realize that David's char- Daniel's character was such that his enemies couldn't even find something against him. And they said the only way we could possibly do something against him if we fight against the law of his God. And so the gospel is more than just Lord save me. It, it inundates and it influences every single aspect of my life and how I'm supposed to work, how I'm supposed to live. Sam?